Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm James, and joining me on today's episode are Mike and Rory from the My Wall Street Analyst team. Today, we're talking about why the current market is so volatile, why the Netflix earnings sell-off was overblown, and the reasons why we don't like Jumia as an investment. So guys, another week, another Stock Club podcast. Mike, welcome back. You've been missing for a few weeks. Your first podcast <laughs> of 2022, I think, is it? Yeah, I had a, I had some goodwill in the bank from last year, so I've been on holidays. Yeah. I think you, you put you put in a you put in a heavy shift there before yeah, the Christmas yeah. period. Uh, Rory, you're back too. You were missing for different reasons, though. So, what's going on over at Peloton? <laughs> Is that, do you think that's the reason I haven't been on the show? Yeah, you you went you went quiet just, there for a while. He's just crying <laughs> crying into my uh, earnings reports. Yeah. Um. God, what is going on at Peloton? I don't think I've ever seen a company go through a worse kind of news cycle than Peloton has over the last couple of weeks. I mean, it's Uber 2017-esque levels of badness. Um, worse, than, worse than Facebook? Facebook last year. It's up there. Facebook, mean, <laughs> and, uh, Facebook when they undermine democracy. <laughs> uh, they, just, they just can't seem to put a foot right now at the moment. Um, pedal right. Pedal, yeah. <laughs> just get their cycling shoes on, I'd say. <laughs> Well, what, what what is like what what's your perspective? You know, we got that. Um, it was just after we published last week's episode. There was this announcement that they, I think, they'd stopped um production for the rest of the quarter, and then the CEO came out and said that was false. Um, I think the earnings report is coming out next week, I believe. What what's your stance currently? I mean, we've got, so it's one of those ones where you kind of have to, I suppose, separate the fact that you work in the world of finance from what's actually happening on the ground. It's like, you know, when you meet people who don't know that Instagram is owned by Facebook, um, you, kind of have to, you kind of have to kind of take this idea of like, well, is it actually going, is all this kind of actually impact the company really in any way? They've already, they already brought out kind of preliminary results, which has kind of died down, I suppose, the anticipation of, of what's going to happen in the earnings report. Um, next week, uh, they, you know, they beat their own guidance, uh, in terms of revenue. It's, I think what we need to kind of see is we know demand slowed because mm. they've told us <laughs> and, and that it, that was going to happen. It was always going to be a pull forward, but how much has it slowed is, is the real thing. And are, you know, they've got such a, they've still got this, a really big engaged subscriber base. And that's kind of going to be the key for them to build upon that. And I, I just kind of wonder what's going to re- be really kind of interesting is in the earnings report, those kind of engagement metrics, are people still using these things? Because last time they were still getting 16 uses uh, a month, uh, each bike. Hmm. Um, that was in the middle of summer as well. That was in the, yeah, that was, that was in the middle of summer. That was, and that was the summer when like everything opened up again. Where, yeah. Like, so the last... you, using it every second day is not bad. bad no, it's, it's, it's far from a clothes horse just yet. But um, I think like, you know, 
<laughs> it's one of those things where I feel like we have to be at like peak fear in terms of this business. It doesn't seem to be any kind of uh, they're not get they're not getting any benefit from anyone right now. So yeah, look, well, I, I think we're, yeah, we're definitely going to book you for next week's episode <laughs> to get yeah. the update after the earnings. So I'm sure we definitely can look do. Forward to that. Definitely do. I'm I'm always opening to taking a shellacking, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> well. I thought for this episode, we'd keep the good news rolling. And let's talk about the state of the current market. So if we thought 2021 was bad, uh, 2022 really has a kicking in for us. Um, as we record this, the S&P 500 has fallen close to 10% this year already. The Nasdaq has dropped close to 15%. And we've seen like just in general, some really volatile days in the market. Earlier this week, um, Shopify stock dropped some 10% at market open on Monday morning, only to come roaring back, jumped 20% from those lows in the day. Absolutely incredible moves. Um, Mike, we were talking about this, and I know you wrote a piece um, for my Wall Street app about this. Um, with two of the major US indices down 10 and 15% apiece, is it fair to say that we've entered into our first market correction since the coronavirus crash uh, two years ago? Yeah, well, that's, that's exactly what it is. It's a correction. Um, so like Next correction. question is... <laughs> yes. Literal definition of a correction has been achieved. <laughs> so for the listeners, a correction is a drop of 10% from highs. A bear market's 20% and a crash is 30%. So hopefully we do stay in correction territory and don't stray further. But um, yeah, in general, I don't think this is anything to worry about, really. There was a study done, uh, I can't remember, I think Ben Carson wrote a piece on it, but it was saying that there's 63% of chance of a correction. And this is data goes back to 1928. So basically, if you're a long-term investor who would be looking to hold a stock for 10 years, you can expect a pullback of an average of 15%. 15% six times. Yeah. So like it's it's kind of scary and you know CNBC it's all flashing red and talking heads are screaming and it's the end of days but this should happen almost once every second year and it's kind of the price of admission for holding stocks. So yeah. It's not fun when you're in the middle of it but I think it is actually vital experience to go through as an investor especially if you're a new investor. Um, that, that's an interesting point Rory you're out of the three of us you've been longest in this game and I think some, one thing you've often mentioned is that you know investors in the current market forget that the market goes down sometimes and it's not always up and to the right. Uh, do you think we're maybe entering into just what could be considered more normal market conditions as compared to the last couple of years? Well, definitely the last couple of years weren't normal market conditions. Because, and I mean, we did, of course, suffer a black swan event in the terms of a worldwide pandemic that essentially shut down the entire universe. Um, the results of which we don't know yet. We don't know what's going, how the world's going to look in a couple of years. Um, if you think about just you know the great resignation that's happening, who would have predicted that? <laughs> it's it's there's so many kind of moving parts right now. Um, but I mean, like going back to that thing that you said there earlier, James, about Shopify's move the other day. Like a forty billion dollars evaluation was it was changed there in the in the space of a couple of hours. Yeah. At what at what point do you go right? Well, this business Shopify is worth forty billion dollars less than it was an hour ago. You know, the, it's just outrageous kind of volatility, and there's a number of things kind of playing into it. Um, as uh, as Bill Mann pointed out when I was listening to his podcast the other day something like a trillion dollars of value went into equities last year. So more than like the past 19 years combined. Um, and that money was essentially kind of looking for that growth that we saw in 2020, 2021, that you know, those days when we were seeing stocks go up 40% every month, you know? And, yeah. and there's a kind of, I suppose, 
realization now that that isn't the way things are and that money's kind of maybe been pulled out. Uh, and, and where where is this money coming from? Like, is this coming from, Mike, you've talked about, you know, the, the rise of the Reddit investor and retail investors, or is this, you know, private private money? Where, where is it coming from? <laughs> it's coming from everywhere. All sides. You've also got this situation where there's very few other places to put your money. You know, you're getting okay. such a low yield from kind of more traditional safe investments like treasury bonds and stuff, but you, there was nowhere else to put it. You, if you put it into a bank, you were losing money. <laughs> you know, that's how yeah. low the rates were. So you had to put it somewhere and it went into, the, into equities. But, you know, like in terms of the investor experience, Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's business partner, said, if you can't handle a 50% drawdown on the value of your holdings, you have no right being a common shareholder and you deserve the mediocre t- returns you're going to get. But he's gone through three of those, right? <laughs> that is and a man he, who is sick of being asked. He's been, he's been sick of being asked. <laughs> like it's, you know, it's easy to buy stocks. Uh, you know, it's, you buy, buying a stock is very simple. Selling a stock is very simple. Holding on <laughs> while things go terrible. That's where you make your money. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, there's there's a lot of reasons. Like we talked about the, the volatility in terms of like cash flowing into the stock market, but there's a lot of kind of external reasons too being thrown around for the, the current conditions. There's inflation fears, rising interest rates, political tension in Eastern Europe and, and kind of all over the world, really. And then there is still the, the small matter of a global pandemic that's lingering around too. Mike, what do you think is the most influencing factor? Is, is, can, could we nail this down to one? That's why everyone seems to be beaten down on stock at the minute. Yeah, look, I, I think you can get a little too overcomplicated with things and try to give everything a reason. If we look, if we take a step back and look at the last two years, you know, everything that was SaaS or software or tech went up two or threefold since the Corona crash. You know, mm. and like I think the market has a tendency to always overreact in one direction or another. So we could say that that was a complete overreaction to the upside. And what we're seeing now with great businesses being cut in half is. The opposite of that, the kind of balancing of the scales. And I think it is an overreaction to the downside. I think I'm never going to put a time on this, but eventually we will get to like kind of happy medium where we've kind of recovered from this overreaction to the downside and have found ourselves in more normal conditions. Like I know Rory did mention there the kind of um, economic stimulus and the pullback and the tapering from the Fed, but the, a lot of weight has been given to that. And I think it's searching for a reason. When really what we can say is this market absolutely needed a pullback. Valuations were getting stretched. Yeah. And what we've seen now is that, and I think there is a bit of a perfect storm in terms of macro factors that you mentioned there, but maybe not searching for the reason why, but just accepting that, okay, well, there's nothing wrong with the pullback that did happen. Should yeah. we answer that question? Absolutely. And, and of course, there's another big macro factor coming in, in the next few weeks, which is earnings season. So we've already seen how badly investors react reacted to Netflix's earnings last week. And we're going to talk about that more depth in a second. But Mike, do you I suppose this this means that volatility isn't going to calm down anytime soon. Do you expect some big swings this earnings season as companies report over the last quarter? Yeah, I read a tweet there um about Microsoft's earnings. So yeah. essentially it was it was that it dropped six percent faster than it was possible to have taken in the information in the report in after hours trading. And then obviously the next morning, it opened up 7% up. So, Rory, you're talking about a $40 billion uh, valuation change there. I think that's about a $280 billion swing 
in terms of 6% down to 7% up. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think, I think emotions are governing the stock market right now. And we've seen wild swings all week. I don't think earnings season is going to calm anything down. Yeah, so we better strap in for a bumpy couple of weeks. Well, let's talk about earnings then. And as usual for my Wall Street shortlist, Netflix is first up with its fourth quarter earnings. Um, the streaming pioneer reported earnings and revenue that came roughly in line with analyst expectations. I think earnings were a good beat on expectations. But importantly, a miss on subscriber growth. So they recorded about 8.3 million versus 8.5 million expected, caused a massive sell-off in the stock in the following day or two. Um, the outlook for the current quarter for Netflix also disappointed investors. The company is anticipating 2.5 million new additions this quarter, which is far below the 4 million it added at the same time last year. Rory, the fourth quarter is always a great quarter for Netflix. It includes the holiday season. And this year, it included some of its biggest shows. We had, so we had Squid Game, which is probably one of its most popular TV shows ever. It had two of its biggest movie releases ever, which was Don't Look Up at Red Notice. Is it concerning to you that in such an important and, and quarter for the company that growth was so anemic um, anemic i don't think is the right word um, I, I, I got a thesaurus for it <laughs> like as you said they forecast what 8.5 million new subs they hit 8.3 you know if we think about that remember this is net additions okay so it's not just new people in the door it's 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 how many they, they plan to add to their current base so in that sense management missed the mark by 0.2 million subscribers on a 222 million subscriber base. So they missed the mark by 0.09%. Not, not something that I think they should be hung, drawn, and quartered for. It was like, of course, the guidance was a big issue. And I think, first of all, back to Mike's point in terms of earnings, I wouldn't be expecting any positive guidance for the next, for this earnings season. There is no incentive for managers to have a rosy outlook going forward. It's much better to under-promise and over-deliver given the current uh, uncertainty that's in the market. I mean, in terms of Netflix, they said they expect to add just 2.5 million subscribers this quarter. Obviously, that's way down on the 8.5 million they'd expected in the in this quarter, or previous quarter. But obviously, there's a seasonality element to that. Q1 is typically a slow quarter for them. But last year, they added 4 million in the same quarter. So you can't really blame seasonality for that slowdown in growth. But let's think about this. The stock has essentially been cut in half because they gave weak guidance on growth for the next 90 days. You know, looking across even a number of kind of Wall Street analysts, nearly all of them have dramatically cut their price targets, not quite by 50%, but some as big as 40%. Now, like as a long-term investor, I find that pretty hard to understand. You're telling me that the future cash, the future value of the cash flows coming out of Netflix from here until eternity are going to be 40 to 50% less than they thought you were going to be a week ago. Because what? Because they're going to have a slower than usual season. I think it's incredibly neater for, for a reaction, a kind of knee-jerk reaction from any business. But particularly if you look back at the history of Netflix and their guidance. So just last year, Netflix missed its guidance by a mile. They, they reported something like 4 million new subs on a guidance of 6 million. Yeah. And then to really throw the kitchen sink at it, they guided for just a million subs in the following quarter. But of course, they ended up beating that guidance. They added 1.5 million. The next quarter, they guided for 3.5, but hit 4.4. So it's a business that's hard to guide for anyway. And you're going to have these ups and downs due to the very nature of streaming. And as you said, there'll be, there'll be times when they have big hits and there'll be times when they don't have big hits. But kind of moving away from the stock price and talking about the business itself, I think there is this kind of growing question over Netflix's long-term model in terms of competition. And when I say competition, there's a few kind of factors to consider. So it's a subscription-based business. 
um, as opposed to say an ad-supported business like YouTube. So you're not, they're not directly competing with other businesses in terms of viewer attention, right? So Netflix can make money whether you're watching Disney when you're, while someone's watching Disney Plus. Yeah. Um, if you're CNN, you can't make money while someone's watching Fox. So they have that kind of advantage in terms of, well, you know, it, it could be for a lot of households to have multiple subscriptions. Um, and we've seen that they're able to grow in parallel. So it's not like a winner take all market. The more persistent issue for Netflix now is kind of, it's not kind of necessarily competition over consumers, but competition over their content. So being the biggest platform, you have a number of kind of structural advantages uh, in the sense that like, you know, your cost per subscriber, let's say of any piece of content is much lower than any other service. But the problem arises when you have companies like Disney and Amazon, for whom they've decided, you know what, we're happy to lose money on streaming because we've got these other, these other things in the fly house. So I think that's the kind of long-term kind of question is, not necessarily are they going to be able to continue to grow alongside intense, like in, in, alongside increased competition from others. How much are they going to be with the buy side of things? Um, keep in mind that something like, I mean, they said in the earnings call, only 10% of TV watched in the US is Netflix. So there yeah. is this, like, they still have kind of growth opportunities there. And that kind of switch from linear to, to streaming is still very much in its early days uh, globally and, and in the domestic markets. Let, let me ask you a bit more about that US uh, figure, Rory, because in, in the investor letter that management published with the earnings, they mentioned that 90% of their new subscribers came from outside the US and Canada. Um, we've spoken a lot in this podcast about how Netflix's you know, opportunities for growth lie internationally, especially with foreign language features and things like that. But where, where do you think this lies? Do you still think there is growth for them within the US? I think you, I mean, you could kind of make the point that Netflix is kind of one of those odd ones where the pull forward during the pandemic was the kind of final pull forward, if you want to think of it that way. It's not like, it's not like they're kind of pulling forward and then continuing, you know, if, if you can't pick up subscribers during uh, lockdown, when are you going to pick up subscribers? But it's, you know, it, more in terms of that idea of like, where TV is being consumed and how many eyeballs they have on them at times. I think there's definitely obviously room for growth there since this is out of 70, 10% of their of TV watched in the US is Netflix. But yeah, they, I mean, Amory wrote a really good piece recently in the app about their kind of localization efforts. And you know, there's still plenty of room to grow in a variety of markets that are all bringing up their own challenges. We see like they're cutting costs in India for at the moment to kind of boost subscribers. It, it, it's kind of that one of like, well, is Netflix going to be in every household in the world? Probably not. But is it going to be in most households eventually? I think it probably will be alongside a kind of couple of others like Disney Plus. Maybe you'll have kind of a couple of people who are going down the kind of more niche ones like Peacock or HBO Max. But there, there will be kind of three, four, four streaming services in 10 years yeah and just, and just we spoke last week about um, Netflix raising its prices uh, do you think we should have expected these disappointing numbers coming through do you think that price uh, the price increase has anything to do with falling subscriber numbers it's kind of hard to tell because I, I always think that it's, it's one of those ones where they do have they should have pricing power <laughs> you know for what you mean even if they were to double their prices the amount of entertainment value you're getting for the cost is great but as you see like i said disney plus and amazon 
they don't need to make money off this. <laughs> they can keep their prices really low yeah. and have this as a kind of loss leader for them because you've got that kind of flywheel where all Disney wants is people to be consuming Disney content all the time because they'll make the money up on you know rides so they make the, the, on cruises and people go into the on merchandise. Um, whereas Netflix is the only thing they do is is streaming. So yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I I I think they still have some pricing power there, but I suppose it comes down to that thing. Well, what are your competitors doing? Think they'll ever go ad supported, or is there an argument for them ever to go ad supported? Uh, Hastings has said he's never going ad supported, um, and I think like that's that's where there's and it's funny. There's certain markets where they probably could go ad supported. Um, for example, like in India, you know, ad supported it's almost expected there. It's isn't it? kind of expected there. You know, if you've ever watched Indian TV, there's like an advertisement on all the time. It's like you never have an even when they're like reading the news, there's like a flashing advertisement on the screen. Yeah. Um, so people are kind of willing to put up with it in certain cultures, whereas others have decided, you know, we're happy to pay up $10, $14 to not have ads. Um, and I mean, there's, there's kids today who, when they see ads on TV, kind of are confused, you know, what's going on? Why is my show being interrupted? Yeah. But before we, this is usually where we move on from the news section, but a, a, a different piece of news came out just before we went to record, which is Neil Young is pulling all of his uh, music off Spotify in protests at the Joe Rogan podcast. Mike, how do you plan on uh, keep rocking in the free worlds now that Neil, music's, or Neil Young's music is gone? Jesus, wait till, wait till Neil Young sees it's on YouTube. <laughs> the, only, the only way to hear a song is by pulling up beside him in traffic. Uh, <laughs> what what do know. you think, Rory? Do you think this is, should we pull the Sock Club podcast off, you, off Spotify in, uh, in solidarity? I think it's a massive, it's a massive win for my friend Manus, who is, as a part I know, the only person left in the world subscribed to Deezer. <laughs> Deezer! <laughs> do you know what the worst thing about this is? My father's favorite song in the entire world is Harvest Moon. And I just know I'm going to get the blame for this when he asks Alex to play it. <laughs> you're, going to have to pay, you're going to have to pay the Amazon music subscription. The man has good taste. So let's move on. What's going on in my Wall Street app at the minute? Well, we already have our first Stock with One pick for 2022 live in the app, along with the Stock with One podcast and our brand new stock as well. We also have some great insights from the analyst team this week, including a first look on the company Latch. That's a SaaS company that recently went public by a SPAC, I think, and rewrote that. And a piece from Mike explaining more about the current market conditions. Um, if you want to check all of this out, along with our full shortlist of Antic stocks and more great investing analysis, just go to mywallstreet.com and sign up there. Uh, let's move on to Mailbag. So for this week's Mailbag, we've got a question in from Bruno on Twitter. Thanks for getting in touch with us, Bruno. He asked for our opinion on Jumia an online marketplace that's headquartered in Nigeria. Rory, I think you once said that Jumia was the Amazon of Africa. I know you love making these comparisons, so does that still stand? It was like saying it sarcastically? <laughs> maybe there was, was, maybe like, there was bunny ears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jumia. So I took a good look at Jumia when it first came public a couple of years ago because like I said, it kind of fits into that kind of business that we do like to invest in, the kind of Mercado Libre, C-Limited bundle. But while I was reading the F1, it's not an app one it's not based in the us i was pretty like genuinely kind of shocked at how slapstick the business was at the time um and i've kind of pulled uh, the particularly around their logistics and some serious problems with fraud they were experiencing so i'm going to pull a quote from that now this is from a couple of years ago but 
The company says, we face the risk that third-party delivery agents might misappropriate inventory, and we struggle to verify delivery when our third-party delivery partners deliver packages without obtaining customer signatures. When goods are delivered without verification, we may be required to deliver a duplicate product. When a third-party delivery agent successfully delivers a product and accepts cash payment from the customers, we face the additional risk of late collections or unrecoverable receivables. These risks are particularly acute in countries where a percentage of outsourced delivery remains high. For example, in Kenya, where approximately 95% of our consumers paid in cash or cash equivalents in 2016, we discovered in early 2018 that 720,000 euros of cash payments remained uncollected, the large majority of which was never subsequently collected. Wow. Now, <laughs> they do go on to say that that was an accounting issue that's been resolved with an automated system. But myself, as an investor, I'm not going to put my money behind a management team that doesn't notice three quarters of a million euro missing. Now, like I said, that was a couple of years ago. But since from, from kind of since then, pretty much everything I've seen just seems to be a company stumbling from one problem to another. Their logistics seems to be a total nightmare. There's, there's so much stuff returned or not delivered that they've, they've had to exit a number of major markets because of this. They've pivoted from first party order model to a marketplace that kind of seems like a race to zero. And like the pandemic, which really should have been a time for this company to prove their concept, was an utter disaster for them. They actually went, the revenue actually went down in 2020 because of the aforementioned logistical issues. On top of that, if the company's motto is 100% Africa, 100% internet, yet their founders, who own less than 1% of the shares, by the way, aren't African, they're European and French Canadian, and the company's headquartered in Berlin. So it's just one of those companies that everything I look at, I don't like. But you, well, you, you just disproved me there because I said it was headquartered in Nigeria. So it shows my <laughs> level of research. <laughs> do you want to know what the real uh, Amazon of Africa is? Amazon? The Nile. <laughs> <laughs> oh, done. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> One more thing not to like about that company, Rory. <laughs> so, so final thoughts on Rory. A big fat no. It's like... You know, it's at $3 billion, it's really small and it, it does, you know, there's potential there. Yeah. But I just don't, like, there's, it's not hitting any of the checks that I look for in a business. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's mm. such a, it's such a big marketplace, obviously. Um, but I do think there will be a company that comes from Africa that there's such an enthusiasm for that region, I think. And there's like all the things you like about the growing young population, like the adoption of internet and all the rest that there will be a company that will really take the markets by storm in the next Oh yeah, someone's going to crack it. Someone's going to crack it. If, if, if I had to put my money on it, I'd say it's going to be someone like Alibaba. Yeah. yeah. Okay, interesting. Let's move on then to Elevator Pitch. Before we get to Elevator Pitch, I just need to point out that uh, listeners at home won't know this, but Mike is holding his mic like a, a stand-up <laughs> comedian. So he's holding it in his hand, speaking into it. I just... Uh, it's, it's a new approach, Mike. Is this your new, uh, your new recording tactic for 2022? Uh, it's, it's my new office. It's my new office space. I, I need like <laughs> a stack of books or something to put my mic on. <laughs> so elevator pitch. So as we mentioned already, we're looking down the barrel of what promises to be a pretty busy and volatile earnings season. So for this week's elevator pitch, I asked you guys to pitch me a company whose earnings you're particularly looking forward to seeing over the next few weeks and why. So it could be good, it could be for bad. Michael, come to you first. What company are you really looking out for earnings? I am looking out for Upstart. It's I know it's not reporting for another two weeks, I think, but uh, it's been been one of the extreme casualties of the recent dip in tech. But it was also, as we were saying earlier, probably in much need of a comeback as well. Uh, yeah. If you look at its chart since its IPO in December 2020, it's pretty nuts. So it was up almost ninefold in the space of ten months. Wow. 
<laughs> and, and it's now down more than 75% since its all-time high set in October. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, as you can see, like, that is pretty, that, that's a good example of kind of what we were saying, where like 900%, 800% in the space of less than a year isn't going to be sustainable. So yeah. to kind of be surprised by one of these pullbacks shouldn't be a factor, but it's still reporting amazing growth. And I think that's not going to change. So total revenue in Q4 2020 was 87 million and revenue for the last quarter, Q3 of 2021 was 230 million. So I think if we can see the same sequential growth, it's going to be another huge, uh, another huge beat. And then I just want to hear more about their uh, car loans product as well for management too. So. Yeah, well, I was going to ask, remind me what Upstart do, but I think you probably answered it there in the, in the last part of that. Thanks for that, Mike. So Rory, what company, who, whose earnings are you looking out for? I think a business is going to, this, whose earnings report is going to tell us an awful lot is, the, is Home Depot. I think in general, we're going to see, we're going to get an awful lot of, not of information from management in return to, in, in, in terms of the stuff that we have been talking about, uh, which is driving kind of the market step down at the moment. So we'll get a kind of sense of kind of consumer demand. We'll see if this kind of investment in the home thesis is paying out. Um, we'll see what their supply chain is, is, is looking like, whether they're having disruptions there. We'll see what's happening in terms of their workforce, if they're having any disruptions there. And we'll kind of get a good sense and kind of costs and, and inflationary pressures too. So I think uh, the Home Depot is usually a kind of good kind of benchmark for, for how things are going in the US economy in general. And this time, I think it's going to give us just that extra little bit more in terms of what's actually happening at a major US uh, brick and mortar retailer. Yeah, definitely an interesting perspective. Uh, one of my eternal favorites, Home Depot. Um, I, always like to, I always like to mention it for you, Dennis. Yeah, <laughs> a little, little treat <laughs> for me there. Uh, so that's it for today's show. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like us to answer or elevator pitches you'd like us to attack, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter. That's, that's at MyWallStreetHQ. On TikTok, that's at MyWallStreet. Or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us. And don't forget to leave a review for us on ever podcast platform you listen to us on. Rory, before we started today's podcast, you asked me, an update on our charts and what company we were number one in our country we were number one in glad to tell you that we're number three in iceland at the moment so uh i don't know how to say hello in icelandic but um hello to everyone listening to us in iceland so that's okay. it from the three of us here today and we'll talk to you next week My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards... Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.